It's time for Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games Podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 188. I'm Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. Today uh, we have that interview we've been threatening for a while. We have with us Lars Doucet. Welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Excellent. So uh, you are the prolific writer on uh, Gama Sutra. Lots of great articles there. We've talked about on the podcast before, including the four currencies. And then uh, recently, I think it was last week or the week before, it was the uh, Oil It or Spoil It article that we really enjoyed. Oh, and then there was also, uh, you are a maker of uh, Defender's Quest, really prominent indie game. Very cool stuff. So uh, we'd like to jump into it. Um, how did you get started making games? So, um, pretty typical story, you know, I've been one of those kids who got a Nintendo when he was six or whatever and, you know, wanted to make games forever. Um, to speed up to the more relevant portion, um, you know, I messed with QBasic, you know, here in their middle school nice. and took up one comp sci class in high school. But where I really got started was I started making Flash games in college. That's where I actually started to kind of get serious. And um, I kind of rolled that into... Um, a sort of aborted career in educational games for a while. So I started in college and grad school doing educational games. Um, my first one was called Super Energy Apocalypse, which was about sustainable energy use in zombies, and that became actually my master's thesis was wow. uh, a research project for that. And I got, you know, you could call it a grant. I got support from Houston Advanced Research Center. They helped me with the research, and then um, they financially supported the project. And um, after that... I worked on a grant project from the MacArthur Foundation um, on a cell biology real-time strategy game called Cellcraft. Um, and I teamed up with a guy called Anthony Pecarella to do it. He was actually the um, he, he was actually the guy who got the grant. And um, he had a day job working for Congregate, so we'll get to that later. Um, so that's those were the two big successful educational games, I would say. I worked on a whole bunch of other ones, which you've never heard of, which never saw the light of day, for a lot of reasons that I could go on a big rant about all the institutional problems that basically make sure that no educational game ever can be good unless there are exceptional circumstances, which is what applied in the case of Energy Apocalypse and Cellcraft, which is why I'm actually proud of those. Um, and then I, you know, Flash was still big in those days. I... Got a job working for uh, some company on a Facebook game. Um, they they were published by Ubisoft. It was the House MD um, Facebook game, and oh, wow. uh, then that, uh, and then um, then I moved on from there, and I um, basically circled back to the guy who I'd worked with on Cellcraft, Anthony, because he worked at Congregate. And he had this idea for a cool game, and that turned into Defender's Quest, because by that time I was kind of thoroughly burnt out on contract work on Facebook games and on trying to make educational games work just because of all the institutional problems I ran into. And I was like, you know, I've always tried to do like the official safe thing by working for quote-unquote real companies like making these Facebook games and quote-unquote you know, real institutions like working on these educational games, you know, all these unnamed ones that didn't go as well as Cellcraft and Energy Apocalypse. And it's just horrible and people aren't paying their uh, invoices and um, the working conditions are kind of crap. And I, you know, spend all this time doing the safe thing. You know what? What What the hell? Let's just make an indie game 
because obviously everything I try to do is exactly as risky as trying to make an indie game. <laughs> so let's just do something we might as well enjoy. And then, you know, let's see if we can kind of apply our brains and hope for figuring out how to work the business side of things and also hope to get a little lucky. And, you know, so far things worked out pretty well. And so I teamed up back with Anthony, who was one of my really positive experiences in educational games. And he's like, yeah, let's just make a fun game. And we did, and it did pretty well. And that is how I got to where I am now. Oh, very so interesting. did you, you launch Defender's Quest, the first version on Congregate? Yeah, among other places. It wasn't the, we, we first launched it just on our own website. Um, and we launched it on Congregate. Um, when we first launched on Congregate, it was just like a web demo. Um, so we weren't actually selling on Congregate itself. It would just link back to our own page uh, with the upsell. We were just using like FastSpring and stuff. This was before Humble Widget or anything like that. And um, and this was back when Steam was really exclusive. And so we weren't on Steam. There wasn't such a thing as Greenlight. Um, so for nine months, I, I wrote a bunch of articles back in the day documenting the whole process. But basically for just nine months, we sold Defender's Quest just on our own site. And it did pretty well. I mean, it wasn't making, you know, like Steam money, especially not 2012 Steam money. But um, it, w- it was enough to be like, yeah, that was not a failure. That was, you know, enough to make a, you know, small scale game for a small scale team. Um, and then we were able to kind of relay those numbers into getting onto Steam back when it was pretty hard to get on Steam. And I think we wound up being the l- pretty much like the last, if not the last, one of the like last four or five games that were accepted onto Steam the old way before they moved to Greenlight. Interesting. So how many people worked on the original Defender's Quest with you? It depends on how you define that. You know, like everyone who's ever done anything to touch it, I mean, probably like dozens, but that includes like one-off contractors and testers and stuff. You know, the core team has always been four people, which is me as the programmer, and I probably do the most work on it. Um, And then Anthony was the designer, so he would do like level design and character class design and balancing. Um, and he founded the company with me. And then we have our writer, James, who has progressively taken on a larger and larger role. Um, but he, he like came up with the characters and the story and like the script and stuff. And, um, then we had Kevin Penkin, who's our musician, um, who did all the music. And then we have a couple of favorite contractors we always like to use, like Karen Petrasco, who's been our um, one of our artists from the beginning. She did like all the background work and stuff like that. And um, but you know, then there's uh, other contractors that will come and go that we we'll use sometime. Um, but that's like the core team is those four people, and then uh, Karen's kind of been with us from the beginning. And then we have some some other contractors that we use that we really like and um, that have been with us for varying lengths of time. Um, so that kind of gives you a feel for it. Hmm. So are you guys kind of pretty distributed in terms of location? Absolutely, yeah. Um, for the longest time, uh, I I think still to this date, the four core team members have never all met in person in the same place. Hmm. You know, but I've I've met Anthony and James lives in my town. So, um, but other than that, you know, it's all distributed, all online, just all coordinated asynchronously. Um, and I've certainly not met, I don't think any of the contractors I work with, I just, you know, they get a job, you know, they get paid, they do the thing, etc. So about how long was the development of Defender's Quest? Yeah, that's funny. Um, it was originally conceived to be like a quote-unquote short three- to six-month project, you know, <laughs> famous. It's very familiar to us, yeah. Famous last words. Right. Um, and the idea behind that was that we would um, 
basically we were like, you know, we're looking on Congregate, you know, back in like 2011, 2010, and it's like, you know, there's some good games on here, but like the barrier to entry is pretty low, you know. It's not too cocky to think that if we really worked hard, we could make the best game on Congregate in 2011, mm-hmm. you know. And so that was the goal of Defender's Quest was to make, you know, something that could like really top the charts by that standard, you know. And um, so it took about, we estimate about three to six months. Um, I think it wound, I forget how long it took. Um, I know we launched in 2000 and the very beginning of 2012, I think, was... Or was it 11? I forget. It's been four years. It's 2016 now. So we must have launched in January 2012. Um, I know we started the very first time we ever even had the idea for it was somewhere in summer 2010. So you could say it was a year and a half. Most of the early work on it was not full-time at all by anyone because I was still doing my quote-unquote safe jobs. Um, So that gives you the time span. And um, But then we're still working on it today. You know, and so it's expanded because we would work on it, get to kind of a minimum viable product and then put it out and think we were done. And they were like, oh, we can improve it a little more. And then for some crazy reason, people keep buying this game, (laughs) even though it's a single player game, even though it's really content driven. You know, it's not any of the standard. I mean, it's not Stellaris. It's not Civilization. It's not free to play. It's not Dota. You know, it certainly not made money on the scale of any of those games, but um, it still had legs, which has surprised us, given the game's format is not supposed to be something that's conducive to regular updates. Right. Um, but that's just kind of where we're at. So, you know, maybe to actually answer your question, like I would say maybe a year of full-time equivalent work to get us to the first version of the game, and then we've just been working on it ever since. Yeah, it's really hard to judge the time when it's kind of spread out and then, you know, not always full-time, right? You'll have these little spurts of full-time or like a solid year of full-time, but then you'll have these times, uh, like it sounds like now, where, you know, you're working on it, but probably not full-time. I'm wondering what you're doing, uh, like what are you still developing on in Defender's Quest right now? Well, right now we're, of course, you know, we started a pre-order campaign a while back for Defender's Quest 2, and we've been that's where we've been moving towards all this time. So we recently released the Defender's Quest DX update, which was this HD update. But it wasn't really our goal to like, okay, we're going to make an HD update as our next game. Our next game is Defender's Quest 2. But in revamping the engine, we're like, okay, so we've revamped the engine for DQ2 so it can support all the DQ2 features. Um, but it's going to take us longer than just making the engine to make DQ2 because you got to make the engine and the content. So we have all this DQ1 content. We can reformat it a little and then send some artists off on a parallel thread to like make some more high def art and then spend a month, you know, spend a little bit of time rejiggering stuff and then put it back into the DQ2 engine and then, you know, release something so that we're not just releasing nothing until DQ2 is done. And so we did that and it did pretty well, gave us a nice little bump and, you know, shows people we're not alive that DQ2 is not vaporware. Um, <laughs> and then onwards towards DQ2. Um, and then another thing I'm working on is getting it onto getting both of those games onto consoles, which we're almost finished with, which has been an interesting story in and of itself. Well, uh, I have a lot of questions that come from that. Uh, one of them is we were just talking about sequels recently. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I obviously, I want to get into the tech too, because I find the tech side um, of, of what you do very interesting as well. So maybe let's jump into the sequel aspect first. Yeah, sure. So it sounds like Defender's Quest has been kind of, uh, had that long tail for you, like an ongoing uh, success for, for quite a while. And it's, I mean, there's some obvious reasons to follow that with a sequel, but like we were just talking like a week or two ago about 
some of the downsides, right? Like from an indie's right. perspective, a lot of times you'll have a thought about the game you're making, right? It'll be this nice bite-sized thing. Like, you know, I just want to make a, a game about cooking hamburgers or something. And mm-hmm. you get that idea across and you're done and you go on to your next project. Um, so there's like, there's ups and downs of going with a sequel. And I'm, I just kind of want to pick your brain about, you know, how you finally decided, yeah, it was going to be, you know, DQ2 as opposed to, I'm sure you have other ideas in your mind, right? Right. So, I mean, the main reason to go with the sequel, the most obvious one, is if you think it's a good fit for your genre and your audience, you can probably produce a sequel for lower cost than a brand new game. Because a brand new game is, first of all, it's untested. You don't know if it's going to, you don't exactly know what you're going to produce at the end of the day. You, you think you know, but you, you don't. With, with a genre like RPGs and tower defense, it's a pretty loyal audience. You know, that audience is kind of waiting for its next fix. So it's hmm. um, it's a little less, like, if I were to make just, like, a compl- like I'm not sure, say, The Witness 2 would do as well as The Witness. Hmm. Interesting. You know, because it's, like, this totally unique game, more or less, or whatever. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure Braid 2 would do as well as Braid 1. Because, right. like, okay, I got that concept. I'm, I'm done now. You know, even if you create something revolutionary in the second one, I might not show up. But, like, I look at, like, the Z-Boyd guys, and I look at um, the Wajidai guys, or however you pronounce that. You know, um, I like to affectionately call them. I, I shouldn't call them this. Like, I mean to apply this to myself. But um, Shameless Genre Hacks is a <laughs> title I aspire to. You know, I like, um, yeah. I, I like to think they would accept that title affectionately, but I, I don't mean it as an insult at all. I and, think Jeff Vogel uh, would of Spiderweb Software. Yes, yes, yes. That's actually He would have that on a shirt and he'd wear it around. So I think, yeah, yeah. yeah you're, you're in a good place here. Yeah, so exactly. And so those guys are my inspiration, you know, is like they make a bunch of games. Like Z-Boyd says, it's like, okay, so we make a game in our original engine and then we make a sequel to it and then we upgrade the engine a little bit and then we make another game with the same engine and then we upgrade it a little, like they have this little two for strategy. You know, they did Breath of Death uh, 6 or 7, I forget. Like, there's only one in the series, but the fake, like, number. 7, and then yeah. They did, and then they did Cthulhu with basically the same engine. Right. And then they did the new Penny Arcade Adventures. And then the second one used the same engine. And now they've upgraded to uh, Cosmic Star Heroine, you know. And um, the Wajedi guys, they've been using Adventure Game Studio without, like, an inch of shame that, you know, you... you <laughs> You know, which is kind of the adventure game equivalent of it's like, oh, your game was made in RPG Maker, you know, sort of thing. And they, they were just like, you know, we're going to crank out, you know, all these Blackwell games and they're going to be great and people are going to buy them, you know. Um, and then Spiderweb, he's just like absolutely shameless about how much he reuses engines and assets. You know, if anything, I'm kind of doing sort of a bad model of following them. Like that that's kind of my lodestone. But like, I mean, we, we've kind of put a little more effort into like upgrading our engine and assets than, than those guys, which means I'm probably a little less efficient than they are. Um, taking a little longer, but that's kind of like my lodestone is it's like this genre specifically of story driven content, particularly with the RPG aspect. And then as a happy accident, the tower defense crew seems to be sort of of the same inclination that they don't mind. Give me another one of those. Um, and so that makes me a little less afraid of doing a sequel. I'm not necessarily sure whether we should ultimately drop the two from the title or not. Mm. Um, one side of me is like, okay, if we put a two in the title, people will be like, well, I haven't played the first one, so I'm not going to get the story, so I shouldn't buy it. Um, but then other people might not, if without the two, they might not be like, oh, Defender's Quest. 
already played that. I don't need to play this. And they don't notice the subtitles different. So yeah, um, I'm six and one half dozen of the other. We'll have to figure that out eventually. Um, and then I'll be sure to follow that because we've had the same kind of agonizing discussions for months, basically where we had a game, a wizard's lizard that was a marginal success. And then we're working on the sequel. Now we've called it everything from a wizard lizard Two to just straight up soul thief. And you know, it's hard to know where to land because it's not just the message you're trying to convey to the audience you've already got. It's also trying to hold up like a better sign to new gamers coming in. Right. Cause you know, like sometimes that too can really turn people away. Like you were saying, you know, they're like, oh, I didn't hear about the first Defenders Quest, so obviously I don't care about the sequel. And you're like, no, no, you should come in. You will really enjoy this one. But how right, do you right. bring them in the door, right? Right, and so our strategy is Defenders Quest 2 is a totally different setting, totally new characters, kind of like nice. Final Fantasy style, you know, so that you don't need to play the original. But, I mean, we can't call it Defenders Quest 2, colon, you don't need to have played Defenders Quest 1 to totally get this one. I kind of like go that. Ahead and, <laughs> please go good. ahead and play it right now. <laughs> That's a good marketing twist. They'll get lots of attention. Yeah, yeah. Ship it. it <laughs> there's a lot of risks with sequels. Um, there's a lot of risks with doing a whole new game. Um, on balance, we think it was the right decision, and we're totally up, waiting up to the hip in it now, so, I mean, might as well finish it. Yeah, um, for sure. What uh, percentage would you say you are... I mean, it's hard It's hard to gauge when you're on the development path, right? But, like, you know, are you 10% done, or you feel like you're about halfway? I have just learned that I should never answer that question. Um, I try to answer it in terms of objective facts, which is we're done with the engine and now we're moving on to the content. And um, we have laid out our um, spec for the story and the characters. And that's all pretty much mostly finished in terms of, you know, all, all the big pieces are in place and now it's just little things that might move around. We do tend to save our big art pushes until the very, very last minute because they're so expensive to change. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those things where it doesn't look like you have a lot of meat on the bone yet. Um, but that's because the the bone is the stuff that takes so much time to lay. And then you just... I should, I should have started with a concrete <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> but, you can spray um, paint the bone and yeah, I'll, 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 I'll just get the meat. I'll just get the meat <laughs> truck to just pour the meat out onto my bone foundation. This is a really gross analogy, full of gore. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Good yeah, stuff. anyway. And then we'll get a drywall crew to come nail up some skin, but anyway. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the... That's the um, idea how did you land on that marriage of tower defense and rpg was that something that you were interested in or was it kind of a happy accident that you kind of came into that niche or or what i have to give full credit to anthony there because he's just like lars you know people on congregate love rpgs and they love tower defense and have a really good idea for how to combine them and i don't think anyone's ever done it um and i'm like that sounds like a great idea after he told me his plan um more kind of specifically I can think we can pinpoint it to one specific game that basically did everything wrong, and that's Final Fantasy Crystal Defenders on mobile. <laughs> um, and basically, it's like one of those notions where like you're having a dream, and in your dream, like some guy comes up to you with this like brilliant idea, and you don't realize it's a dream. You're like, oh man, he came up with that cool idea, and now I can't use it because it's his idea. And then you wake up and you realize he doesn't exist, and it was your dream, and Ooh. that idea is still a cool idea, and now it's yours. And that's what it was like with Final Fantasy Crystal Defense. Like, oh, man, someone made Final Fantasy Tactics with RPG and Tower Defense. And, oh, that's the best idea ever. I know exactly how I'd make that game. It's too bad because Square Enix already made that game. Well, let's just play it and see what it's like and see what room. Oh, they didn't make that game at all. They made a crappy game. <laughs> so now I'm just going to make that awesome game. And um, basically, we were like, oh, so you you made a Tower Defense game mixed with 
Final Fantasy Tactics trappings were like, you have all the cool Final Fantasy Tactics license, but then you've got like a cool epic story, but then like the battles are tower defense, but each character is like a persistent character in the story and they like they level up and they have skills between battle. Oh, it's not like that at all. It's just by the numbers tower defense. And then it's just like a light Final Fantasy Tactics dressing and all the characters are anonymous and it's just like any tower defense game ever. And you just get like gold in battle and you summon them and like they don't persist and they don't customize. And so that was kind of the idea. And so like the only thing we didn't have was the Final Fantasy Tactics license. We're like, well, you know, we'll just write our own story and um, go from there. Interesting. And so that, so that, that is specifically how we came up on the idea was like kind of a calculated, it's like, okay, this is the intersection of two markets. I see peanut butter chocolate potential here. And I have a specific inspiration from this one game that should have done this, but it didn't. And here's how we're going to do it. Yeah, I felt the nice. same way about Crystal Defenders. I remember being very excited when I first came across it. And then playing it for, you know, maybe an hour and then feeling like, okay, <laughs> this really really isn't what I wanted out of the yeah, game. Yeah, it was, it was a real missed opportunity, especially because um, if you go with, like, the Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles um, game, I think you could find ways to, like, weave that story into something that would make sense for that setting. Um, and they just didn't touch it at all. It's hmm. weird. Like you said, such a missed opportunity because Final Fantasy is typically so story-driven, right? Right. And, and, it, and it, it, it's just obvious it was just a quick cash in, you know, they didn't, you know, I don't, I don't know even know how that deal got made or what studio made it. It's like, I kind of feel like, you know, I wish, I wish Square Enix had kind of knocked on our door, but now I'm like, you know, well, we made our own game now and it's not tied to any license and we're masters of our own destiny. So, you know, maybe I'll do that right. one day, but I'm, you know, glad that we were able to kind of do it ourselves. Hey, you could do that uh, Temple Run thing where you just brand it for them. Cha-ching! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'd well, nice. if they if they come knocking, I'm I I can't say I will say no. So that's I'll right. <laughs> that sounds like a sweet deal to me. Yeah. So I had a a quick question about the HD remake of Defenders Quest One. Um, it seems like it worked out well for you guys, but how did you kind of analyze that business opportunity? Right, like it seems like you wanted to put out something in between. Right, you knew that your audience was hungry for something. Um, but how did you kind of take a look at the investment in terms of upgrading all the art versus the return on investment that you might expect from doing the HD remake? Right. So um, basically, we knew that the original game was selling. Um, we, we, it, it was still selling. We had done projections, and, but it, it was kind of tapering off. But one of the things is that we always looked at, like, what are the, re- what are the reasons people are saying that they're not interested? Because we ha- the, the game is ranked... 97% positive on Steam, overwhelmingly positive. Wow. Um, and it has an extremely sticky demo. Like, the demo on Steam is something like 45% conversion rate or something. And um, it's a captive audience. So you never see those rates elsewhere. But, like, on Congregate, they said it's, like, two or three times stickier than other games. You know, it's like, this is a game that if I put it in front of someone, it tends to sell itself. And so I feel like my only miss, my only problem here is I can't get it in front of enough eyeballs. It has a super generic name, um, and then it has a really tough elevator pitch. It's tower defense plus RPG. Wait, where are you going? Um, it's not like those other ones because it's good, and it's you know it's two buzzwords that everybody uses that I've stuck together, but not in the way you expect. I mean, it's, it's really hard to communicate without someone just like playing it. And so I feel like okay, what I need to do is just you know it, the game is good enough, it's compelling enough. I just need to make people not bounce off of it Hmm. and although i've not been very good at figuring out how to deliver more truckloads of eyeballs i'm like okay what do the people complain about okay they complain about the graphics people always complain about the graphics 
Um, and it's not just because it was sprite art. It's because of some weird decisions we made. There were some kind of clashing styles, which is mostly down to me as an art director rather than the artists. Um, our cutscene art was kind of widely panned um, just because it was kind of something we stuck. It was the one thing we didn't hire specific artists for. Um, and then also our sprite art was also at a very awkward resolution. So you don't get kind of that clean retro shovel knight feel um you you kind of got all the disadvantages of having pixel art without too many of the advantages hmm. um and so we're like okay you know you know people are just like it's just low resolution you know it's not you know classic nostalgic pixel art so we're like okay well what can we do you know and, and plenty of people loved it but we're like okay those people have already bought it and we'll deliver the old version to them and never take it away so how can we get new people? So we're like, okay, well, we can pump a little extra art into this. And then I've written a series of articles doing an HD remake the right way to kind of like be like, okay, we're not gonna, we're not gonna make a whole new game with whole new art. We're gonna find a way to linearly upgrade what we have in an honest way that's true to the original and is better to people who have that kind of taste without, um, without breaking the bank and without being untrue to the original style. So, like, all the poses are kind of one-for-one -one replacements in a new kind of Disney style. So the cutscene art is the most different. And then the sprite art, what we did is, you know, I did some tests where I would upscale it by three times using a sprite upscaler algorithm and then get quotes from artists. It's like, okay, now someone needs to go in and clean it up. How much is that going to cost? And um, luckily I found some good artists. And the key I found with artists is it's not really about how much they charge per hour that's actually a really misleading calculation. What you really want to find out is how efficient they are. And if they're efficient, it really doesn't matter if they charge a lot per hour, um, if they can get four, five, six times as much more done. Um, because I found artists who really know their tools and really know all the production tricks, like especially people who have worked in feature animation are just gold because they're like, okay, I can get this done really fast and really good and I'm going to charge you two or three times as much as the next guy, but he's going to take four or five times as long. And you're going to have constant revisions and back and forth. After going through a whole bunch of artists, I finally found that sweet spot. And then I could get a quote and I'm like, okay, it's going to cost this much. And the game's already selling this much. And so if it even, I, I, I can expect that with a good content update, it might make this much more. And um, so right, as of right now, it's, it's made back its money in terms of hard costs. And so we're now into, you know, we have a better game. And now we're turning a profit, and we have a higher um, a higher daily residual. Um, That's very impressive. That. Yeah, yeah, it's good, not like it's job. not like we we never got like a whole second launch or anything, you know. But we went from you know kind of trailing off down to nothing to it's like okay now it's you know doing okay again. And was that an update, or was that like a brand new product? Like here's a new HD remake game. You know, we thought a lot about that, and we decided. You know, I got a lot of advice on that. We decided, okay, we're not going to do a separate SKU for it. Um, right, And the main reason for that is that there's, no matter what technical promises any store can make you, someone's going to screw it up. Mm, right. You know, it, it's just going to be a pain in the butt to deploy. And that was kind of just the beginning and the end of it is that I just don't want to spend six months getting residual emails of where's my copy? Why didn't it work? You know, <laughs> yeah, right. because I still get those from 2011 of someone who bought the game on Fastspring. You know, who's, and they had this stupid policy where your keys would expire and you couldn't make them not expire. They're like, it's to protect you from piracy. And I'm like, that's my risk to take. 
I just want them to last forever so I don't have to deal with customer service issues. These are actual um, paying customers. These are not the pirates. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. and it's just like it's just like let me choose my own policy on piracy. Right. And so that's why I dumped FastSpring for Humble Store. So I still have the occasional email from a customer from 2011 I still got to deal with. And I'm like, okay, I just want it to be everyone who has it just goes into whatever store library they have and there's a new binary for them to download or a new entry in the thing. Steam makes it so it just like pops up. Do you want to play the deluxe version or the old version? And then that's it. And um, I just decided I also don't want to dilute my stats. You know, I have this awesome positive rating. You know, I don't want... I don't want people to buy the wrong one and get mad, you know, and so I feel like this is the best way to maintain my rating, keep people from getting mad, keep people from getting confused, keep people from wondering what's the difference between Defender's Quest and Defender's Quest DX, you know, it's just like they don't have to care. If you bought it anywhere, you know, then you have the new version, you know, to the best of my abilities, wherever I'm able to deliver a new version, you know, and um, the only exception to that is Congregate because I haven't been able to figure out how I'm going to, um, provided down a new downloadable version to them yet um and they've got some things that i'm working with them on that i can't really talk about right now but um we'll we'll get the dx version to them eventually too i think that i mean that sounds like definitely the right decision because you know like you were just mentioning i think my biggest concern would have been new players coming across both versions and just being very confused about which one and buying the wrong one etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah i wrote yeah. an article about this a while back um but it like just shows like if you go and like search for guacamelee there's like two different versions and like one's called like the like ultra super edition and the other's called like the super ultra edition and you're like which one do i want you know and they're not exactly the same and i'm like i just want guacamelee you know and anyway it's confusing well it's like it hurts the decision paralysis right because it gives people one more thing that they have to think about when trying to decide if they want to buy your game right right it gives them an opportunity to get confused and then forget what they were doing and not buy your game so right. I just yeah. want I just wanted to like smooth that down so they're just like I want Defender's Quest there it is I'm buying it I'm playing Defender's Quest the only Defender's Quest there is. So Defender's Quest started in Flash, but I've seen you be a big proponent of hacks. Yes. And is that so? Did you do a port or like t- tell us about that? Yeah. So hacks that's been a very interesting journey, um, and I definitely am glad that I went there. Um, I definitely have learned a lot about the process of what hacks is good for, what it isn't good for, and also just the difference between hacks and OpenFL, which are often confused but are actually very different things. Um, but yes, I um, I ported Defender's Quest to hacks as part of making Defender's Quest 2 and Defender's Quest DX. You know, the new engine would be done in hacks. And that would not have been possible if not for the existence of hacks Flixel, because hacks is just a programming language. You know, Defender's Quest originally written in ActionScript. Oh, I, you know, hacks is a programming language and ActionScript is a programming language. What's cool about hacks is instead of compiling to a specific binary or bytecode, it compiles to other programming languages. So it's what's called a transpiler. Um, so uh, an example is like TypeScript. TypeScript compiles from TypeScript to JavaScript. But unlike TypeScript, hacks has a bunch of different formats, C++, C Sharp, JavaScript, ActionScript. Um, and then you have lots of depending on what libraries you use, different platforms you can get to. So ActionScript is a language, Flash is a platform, you know, JavaScript is a language, HTML5 is a platform, Node.js is a platform, they both use JavaScript, C++ is a language, Mac, Windows, Linux, Android, iOS are platforms that all use C++ one form or another or Java, you know. 
So um, OpenFL and a library it relies on called Lime are what provide your platforms. And then Hacks just gives you all these languages you can transpile to. And then Hacks Flixel is important because I was using the original Flash Flixel framework. And so, yeah, I've got my game written in Flash, but I'm, I'm relying really on this library that like does everything. Like it takes over rendering and everything. So what I really need is someone who has that in my whatever language I'm going to move to or I'm screwed. And of course, Hacks Flixel is basically now kind of the official successor. Not 100% not official, but in all but name, pretty much everyone's either moved on to Phaser in JS or Hacks Flixel. Um, and it does everything the original Flixel could do and more and had a very similar API. So it was pretty easy to port on the language level. There's some automated tools that will just convert your ActionScript to hacks. It's not magic. And you still have to do a little bit of the last 2% by hand. So that, but, but that mostly took care of the scut work. And then I needed to port the API from, from Flixel to HacksFlixel, which took a little more work because things have moved around a little. There's some different things to consider, especially if you want to go multi-platform. But then the biggest thing was just, okay, I want to go from an 800 by 600 just game that has one resolution supported to a game that can support HD. And that is where like all the work came from. Because I have to go from completely hard-coded user interface things that are just a big blob of code that are just create a button, put it at position 33, 78, this wide, all done in code. And then this other button is at this button's X location plus 15, you know, all just hard-coded to I need flexible layouts that reorient themselves in standard def and widescreen and HD and ultra HD and every window configuration possible, you know, within some realm of sanity. And I need to figure all that out. And that wow. just like, that was all my work. That's a tall <laughs> and, order. And then also get like my sprites to scale right and like have a good, because in the original game, it's just like put some sprite on the screen at exactly this location and I'm done, you know, recolorize it maybe. Now I need to be like, okay, now I need to make sure that those can do HD and that they can be recolorized in HD with like smooth borders and stuff because I can't just do naive pixel replace. Um, and now I need to figure out how to do that within my memory budget because now they're like, they can be like two times, four times as big and still in my animation budget and all that. I mean, and that was like all the work. Hmm. Were you doing all these things simultaneously? Yeah, kind of, kind Ooh. of just like one by Sounds one. Sounds tough. Yeah, it was, well, I had some help. I hired a guy to help me um, port it. And then because it's open source, I'm also working with all these other guys on the engine. Defenders Quest 1, all by just programming by my lonesome. You know, with Defenders Quest 2 and Defenders Quest DX, you know, I was working with these open source libraries. So it's like, there's a feature I needed and someone else needed it too. It's like, hey, I'm working on that. Um, you're working on it too. Well, I'll just... I'll, I'll just post an issue and then maybe someone will fix it and then I get and so does everybody else. So like we had issues with like Unicode formatting and text and other issues and stuff. And so I would post an issue and then by the time I was going to get around to doing it, someone else had already done it. Beautiful. So, I mean, there's downsides to open source too, but that was one of the upsides is that I had colleagues, you know, on the programming side, which I didn't before, you know, it was, it was mostly just me doing the programming and now I had, you know, either people I could hire because they had the skills and I already knew them and I already knew their track record or they were just doing it for their own sake or for the community and then we could all benefit. And then stuff I did that I could contribute back, I would roll back. Right. To be clear, that's uh, Haxi Flixel's open source, not uh, DQ2, correct? Yeah, although parts of it are. Um, hmm, and I've, like the user interface library um, has been accepted by Flixel as their official user interface library. It's now Flixel hmm. UE. Um, and so... 
I'm trying to spin off little bits that I can that are useful. Like nobody's particularly interested in the deep guts of my engine. I might open source it one day. I might not, but it's super tied to exactly what I'm doing. But like my localization engine is of general use and that's called Firetone and it's open source. You know, my crash reporting and logging utility crash dumper is of general interest and that's open source. And so every little module that is of immediate use, um, I spin off when I can. Nice. I really like to see uh, advocates of uh, of open source. I really wish we got our fingers more in there because, you know, we're uh, HTML5 and JavaScript developers. So, like, it's within our wheelhouse. Um, I saw you doing something recently. It was very interesting. Some kind of a campaign around, I think it was Haxi Flixel, getting, was it the core developers from full-time work yes. on it? Tell us yes, about we, that. We recently did a fundraiser for Haxi Flixel. And um, the the founder of it, his name is Alexander, I'm going to pronounce the last name wrong, Holo. Um, <laughs> we butcher li- all names on this podcast, it's okay. Yeah, he lives in Russia. And so um, I was just talking to him one day, and basically he's this brilliant programmer, and he never asks for anything. And he's just, you know, like one of those guys, you know what I mean? And yeah. he's just been, he, he founded this project, you know, he started it. And um, I was talking to him. You know, and just being like, you know, I've just been wondering, you know, what would it take to hire you to work on this for a full year? And he's like, well, you know, I mean, it would, it would need like $6,000. And I'm like, that's very doable. For a you know? year? Yeah. yeah. Six, like, wow. for a year. Yeah, because he lives in Russia and apparently has a terrible job, you know. So I told another Russian, it's like, can a Russian really live on $6,000? He's like, yeah, it's pretty lean. And I'm like... And, and, and I'm like, but that's apparently what he was making. He's actually making less than that at his current job. And so I'm like, well, you know, I mean, I feel bad to pay you this little to work for a year. But, I mean, if it's more than your current job, you know, and you like working on Hexflixel more than working on whatever your job is, then let's try and raise the money and see if we get it. I mean, if we don't get it, then you just keep doing what you're doing. But if we get it, then we can give you that money and Level Up Labs will hire you on a contract that says your job is to work on Hexflixel Submit all your code under the MIT license, you know, check in once in a while, send us some invoices for transparency, and you're done. And he's like, yeah, well, I mean, I guess we can try it, you know. And so we tried it, and we put a pitch together. You know, I talked to the community. And they're like, oh, this is a great idea. Yeah, let's do it. And they're like, here, I'll give you keys for my game, and it'll be a great way to showcase what everyone's been working on and, like, talk about Hacksflix and we'll get some publicity for it. And so we did it, and we were like, okay, so we're only asking for 3000 because we have a Patreon account that has some money in it. And, um, you know, the quote-unquote owners of Hexflixel, which is me, and um, some of the other, like, core developers who kind of run things were like, well, we can kick in some money, so we can probably raise 3000 ourselves. We only need to ask for 3000 And we got 8000 just from the community. And so, yes. you know, which is a pretty modest take, you know, on the scale of Indiegogo's and Kickstarters, but because... He doesn't need as much, you know. This is this this can this can fund him for you know for for at least a year, and hopefully we can give him a little bit of a raise um, from what we were originally planning. And and that was just kind of the original idea, you know. Our second, um, our our biggest contributor. He's not our founder, but our biggest contributor lives in Germany. And I wish we could do the same for him, but he lives in Germany, and so it costs way more to live there. So um, we'll we'll try to give him something, but um, it's not going to stretch as far. So we we don't have that bang for buck opportunity. Um, but it worked, it worked out pretty well and got the word out about Hacksflixel and, you know, we got some corporate sponsors to come in and sponsor us like Blue Bottle Games, the guys who made Neo Scavenger, you know, bought a big sponsorship and Congregate bought a sponsorship and, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're just hoping that we can make this open source 
tool even better because now, you know, it's all been volunteers. It's all been people who have day jobs doing something else, putting in time when they can. And now we can have our own founder who knows the library better than anyone just put his head down and do like just this. That's really I, cool. That's very cool. It's astounding to me that, you know, someone with that level of chops uh, to be able to do that kind of stuff, you know, is I think it just speaks to kind of like how some programmers are, you know, like, you know, he, you were saying that he wasn't like, it says like he wasn't a very big self promoter. Right. But yeah. he's clearly got some skills, right? That yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't want to speculate too much about his situation because I, I don't know what it's like right now in Russia or where he lives or, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of easy for us, you know, who might live in America or the UK or Canada or something where it's like it's it's easy to get visas and go places. Um, but, you know, just, just personality-wise, he, he, he is a very friendly, kind, humble guy who, like, I mean, I almost had to, like, uh, argue him into letting us do this fundraiser for him. <laughs> Because right. he he wants to make sure he doesn't take advantage of anyone, um, and so I told him that you know I would I would be on the hook for anything that goes wrong, and people can blame me, and uh, we'll we'll do transparency reports so everyone knows where things are going. Um, but yeah, he's just he's just a really swell guy, and he's super talented, and I hope that you know this will also give him more visibility, and people can see what good stuff he's done, so that after he's done with this, if he decides you know it's like look I gotta you know look out for my career and do something even bigger and better, you know, then he has that opportunity and people can kind of see, you know, what, what amazing things he's been able to do. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, so now that you've kind of like, seems like you're really going all in with the hacks and the hacks flexible and stuff. And so, um, obviously that sounds like a very good decision from the perspective of taking a game that was an action script and bring it to a lot more cross platforms. Um, what would you think about, hacks and hacks flexible ecosystem if you were maybe going to create a game from scratch now yeah well i mean first of all for me personally lars you say i it's what i know best you know it's what i know best and i have a bunch of frameworks i can dive right into and know exactly what to do which is always what i recommend people do when they make a new game it's like what tech should i use i'm like well unless you need something really specific you should know you should use what you know best so that's my personal situation but i think you meant it in a more general sense so i can recommend it for general use depending on specifically what you want um and then i'm not sure i'm gonna have time on your podcast unless i want to go on a huge tangent to just explain the whole <laughs> hacks ecosystem because it's not just hacks and OpenFL and hacks flexible there's all these other frameworks that do cool stuff but within the small confines of hacks OpenFL and specifically hacks flexible if you're doing 3d you might just consider sticking with something like unity you know, it's just tried and true and it gets the job done. It's really great for 3D. But if you want to make a 2D game or you want to prototype something fast and you definitely like the code-only workflow, um, then I can't recommend HacksFlixel uh, highly enough because it's just, it, it, it's very much conforms to the, I want to make a 2D game. You know, I want to have basic primitives available for me to like do common things like arcade physics and platforming or top-down Zelda-style movement. You know, I want cameras. I want collisions. I want quad trees. You know, it's like, what's great about Flixel is it has all kinds of demos on the site, has source code for every demo. It has a bunch of add-ons that do all a bunch of little things. It's really easy to find an example of exactly how to do A, B, or C of common thing in, you know, almost anything on the smorgasbord of 2D game design. You know, um, if there's anything negative to be said about it is that, the API, because of its history, is a little opinionated about things. It's not as 
ultra modular as some of the newer uh, component-based frameworks, um, but that's one of the things we can improve in the future. But um, that's what I really like about it. It also depends on what platforms you really want to get into. Like if like you just like need to be on consoles, we've got a solution we're working on to get it onto consoles, and Defender's Quest is going to be one of the first games that uses that. But I mean, if if I was a detached observer, I mean, you know, Unity is a safer, more proven route for that. And um, but what I think where I think Hacksflix really shines is if you want to have a game on the web and native. And by native, I mean both desktop and mobile. You know, if you want to cross the native and web bridge without too many compromises, I think something like Hacksflixel or OpenFL or some of the other various Hacks frameworks that are out there are, are really good at that, and Hacksflixel in particular. Um, because right now, if you make a Unity game and you want to go to web, you know, the, the plugin is being deprecated. It's being, it's being killed the way Flash was killed. And so you have a harder time getting people to see your content if you're relying on the plugin. And the plugin was so great. I'm, I'm really mad that they're <laughs> doing that to the plugin, um, which, which is the web browsers more than Unity itself. Um, so Unity has, of course, responded, you know, just valiantly with their, um, what is it, their ASM to JS WebGL thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wish them the best. I've seen a couple instances of some games that do pretty all right with it. But it seems like it is a huge, giant sausage factory of trying to churn the entire Unity framework into this. Um, and I think something that was written with that kind of goal in mind from the start is something that Hacksflixel and OpenFL are a little better at because Hacks is really good at converting into JavaScript that's not monstrous. And it has dead code elimination, so it removes everything from your project that you're not actually using. But as a safeguard, in case they was too aggressive about that, you can put in metadata to be like, don't delete this class because even though there's no references to it, I'm going to use reflection to access it or whatever. So you have all exactly the fine grain control you need but you have real options to reduce your bloat um, when going to JavaScript. And then um, because of Hacks' nature of just from the beginning knowing that it's going to be multi-platform, you know, we can build in custom backends wherever we need to. So, for instance, one thing that's kind of crazy about OpenFL is it has a DOM backend. In case your content is something that could be literally rendered as DOM, it's not going to work for most games, but you can just be like, I want to use the DOM backend and just use the document format to export my app. But you can also do WebGL or you can do Canvas or you can do WebGL with Canvas fallback, you know, for maximum compatibility. And that's something we're going to use our fundraiser money for is to really mature the Hackswixel framework to get that really, really, really solid web experience. Um, it's, it's kind of there. We want to make it all the way there. And then, of course... Desktop has been a wheelhouse for a long time, so desktop runs, you know, pretty well. Um, one thing we could really improve on is the on-ramping experience. It's not as 100% user-friendly as we'd like. Um, installing the dev environment is the biggest pain point. You know, I want to just get it to the point where it's like you click the little installer and it's like do all the things, install hacks, install OpenFill, install all your libraries, set them all to the right version, get everything done, no more complaining about it. There, it just works. That's something I want to put fundraiser resources to if we can use, if we can. Um, but that is what I would say is the real strength of it is if you want to bridge the web and mobile gap without compromises, without having to be like Node.js on desktop and being kind of slow or being like, okay, I have this huge runtime that, you know, is just going to be this big ASM blob that takes, you know, five megs, you know, or whatever, um, and kind of blows up my download size. Um, 
what's well, another thing that's nice about hacks and hexwixel is that on desktop you can get native c output because it transpiles to c it does throw in a runtime gc so it's not you know it's not free but you don't have it's not like you're always got a c-sharp runtime following around wherever you go and you have to figure out how you're going to squeeze mono onto whatever platform you're trying to move to so that is my long-winded answer for its pros it has it has cons and it's not magic but um that is why i happen to like it I mean that I, I've been kind of interested in hacks because of that, you know, the varied amount of targets that you can hit, and, and and just being kind of like, you know, it seems like being a platform agnostic language is a really cool thing these days because there are so many different ways that people can play and consume your game. Um, I was kind of interested in, in the console porting aspect because it kind of seems like um, a lot of the console makers, at least the the very few that we've talked to, um, they seem to be trying to go down a route that is like generic right like we talked to playstation um a while ago and they were like yeah like we love indie games and we kind of like we're going to support unity and we want like all, all these indie games to be on based on unity and then i think nintendo did the same thing um where they support unity but they also have like their nintendo web framework where they want to support kind of like the generic web apis right. and stuff and so i was kind of wondering um when you were going to approach those ports like how how was that from a, coming from a perspective of like maybe a stack that wasn't like on their radar maybe or or was it? It wasn't on their radar at all, you know. So um, it is now kind of on their radar, you know, assuming that there's not too much turnover of the people we've talked to about it. Um, it's now it's now on their radar, but we are not. We have no illusions that we are, you know, the big dog. The big dog is Unity. It, it just makes sense to them to just kind of consolidate around Unity and just give the entire market to Unity and just give them control over everything because you know it's like now they just they can just tell indies just make your game in unity and it'll just run on the consoles it's not my problem anymore you know and we have one thing to support um i mean the downside to that is of course unity consolidates the entire market and you know it's proprietary and you don't get source access to unity and you're kind of at their mercy when they update and if something's wrong you can't fix it yourself now the cost benefit ratio is for a lot of people it, it's it's worth it to use unity because it's not that expensive you know the the console holders subsidize it. It used to be really expensive to get a Unity license on consoles, and now it's still expensive, but you don't pay it. The console holder does, um, which is kind of a jerk move for people like us, because how do we compete with that? Um, right, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you know, can, can we get some of that funding so we can make it free? But how does that conversation start? You know, like, um, do they come to you and say, like, hey, you have a cool indie game. We'd love for it to be on, you know, for example, PlayStation. Right, well, so the thing is, um, within the bounds of NDAs, what I can tell you is that you... You call them up and you tell them you have a game. Um, what's nice for us having hacks is that it compiles to C++, which means we don't necessarily need their help or their permission to run on their platforms if we can just build a console backend that talks to their SDKs, uh, talks to their APIs. You know, just like we build mobile backends, just like we build HTML5 backends, just like we build WebGL backend, just like we build Canvas backend. You know, it's just quote unquote another backend. And so that's what we pitched to them. And, you know, we're like, and it would be nice if you, you know, gave us a lot of support. And that's in, I, I will say within the bounds of NDA that that is an ongoing conversation. Um, but <laughs> for the most part, just the way it works with consoles is, you know, we can compile to C++. We can hook into their tools and their APIs and just build console backends. Now, I did a talk about this at the Worldwide Hacks Conference two years ago where I outlined our strategy. And there's an article up on Gamasutra or whatever about it where basically it's like, okay, so the challenge is 
unlike building out any other backend, we have to do this one in secret, which is really annoying. You know, because all of their stuff is under NDA, which means I can't just put it on GitHub and just like get people to rally around it and just like we all build it and then we just all share it for free. You know, I have to pay for dev kits. I have to, you know, be a company that has the right to see it. I can only share it with other people who have the same access as I do. Um, and then I have to do this three or four times if I want to support multiple platforms. And um, it's going to be harder. It's going to be less tested, you know. So it's kind of a daunting task. So we took a shortcut and we teamed up with WayForward Technologies. They're the guys who make uh, games like Shantae and DuckTales Remastered and Boyness Blob. You know, they've been making games for 25 years on about as many platforms. And so they're like, hey, we have an in-house engine. Um, launch a license it from us. And then you just need to make your back end talk to the WayForward engine and then, and then deal with the last mile details with the consoles and then you have one thing to support instead of five, and then you can get your console backends out of it. And so we've made that deal. And, you know, it complicates licensing a little bit, but um, I'm working on ways to simplify that. But so ultimately, the goal is to kind of make this console backend for anyone who's using Hacks and OpenFL, which includes, you know, of course, things built on OpenFL like HacksFixel, that here's your console backend. It's just like a Windows backend or a Linux backend or a Mac backend, you know, or iPhone backend. It's just instead of typing, you know, the the command is line build Windows to make your Windows thing. Now it's line build PS4. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we still have some work to do to make that totally work, but like I've got Defender's Quest running on the Vita right now. I've got it running on the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4. You know, um, eventually we will be able to support enough API to have, you know, start bringing in other people. Um, and then the goal is we then go to these people and say, hey, we built this thing. Can we make it available as middleware on your little sign your name in blood NDA internal <laughs> websites that other, you know, so someone comes to me, it's like, hey, can I have the console back end? I'm like, no, I'm sorry. And they're like, well, I'm a PS4 developer. I'm like, yes, I can show you the PS4 back end. And, yeah, and then we can do it that way. It's annoying. It's, it's, it's kind of an affront to open source, but... We, we can kind of do our best with an MIT but NDA sort of license. Right. And um, that's what but we're working towards. The only other option is you just don't launch on consoles, which, right. you know. <laughs> yeah, or, or rewrite my game from scratch in some other way. You know, <laughs> no either problem. Re- either rewrite my game from scratch directly targeting their SDKs or another option we could have taken, admittedly, is um, use C-sharp target and just uh, build a Unity backend. Um, For various reasons, we didn't want to do that because, um, I mean, I'll I'll admit that it gets a bit ideological and political for me is that I want people to have a real alternative to Unity. I don't want Unity to just own the entire market forever. I think they've been good stewards of their, well, let's call it what it is, monopoly, you know, so far. But... um, I, I want people to have options long term, and I saw an option that we could we could do this without having to rely on another giant piece in the middle of the stack. And I also felt that we would get better performance if we didn't have to rely on translating from hacks to Unity. You know, just writing in C sharp with Unity is probably more efficient than writing all of Hacks Flixel and then translate it and then build in a Unity backend behind it. So I figured this was. You know, I've, I haven't profiled that because I would have to build this huge thing to test it. And I don't want to do that. So, but right. for various practical and ideological reasons, I wanted it just to be, you know, our own thing that we control that we can decide 
how it gets um, put out there and then put the best, most fair terms possible on it that we can. Right. You want to keep it as close to like the spirit of the open source hacks, you know, right. philosophy that as you can, and, it sounds like. Right. And we took one shortcut by using the WayForward engine. And so we need to have, you know, WayForward's buy-in on whichever direction we go, but it's only one thing. And they're a small company that we're in good with, whereas in Unity, I'm not sure, you know, they would even answer my emails. So, I mean, they're so <laughs> huge. So, I, I mean, I, we definitely couldn't get special treatment from them. So, Absolutely. I think that, that was something else I was going to mention. It sounds like, you know, if you were going to try and work with Unity, you'd have a really hard time breaking in to someone that would actually be, you know, helping you right. push this agenda forward. Right. I, but I that said, but that said, if you're a hacks developer, a Unity, just using a Unity backend, of which some people have written some now, and there's an Unreal un, uh, backend in the works, I mean, that's not a bad option, you know, um, but... Uh, right now, I think this, when it's done, will probably be the best option for people who um, have my priorities and interests. Well, we'll put it that way. Nice. So uh, just a very quick uh, question about, you know, how things have changed within the indie game industry since you kind of started down this path, you know, and, and when you launched Defenders Quest 1, you got on Steam before Greenlight. How right. have things changed for you with the advent of Greenlight? You know, it became a thing and like, you know, people have talked about wanting it to go away and like just the flood the of games. Yeah, the apocalypse. The flood yes. of games on Steam and, and like how do you deal with that? Yeah, so let's immunitize the eschaton and talk about the apocalypse. So um, basically I feel like the more things change, the more things stay the same. So when I was starting, you know, trying to get Defender's Quest, so like when I was starting making games, first of all, we have to remember where we came from. And where we came from is the land of PC gaming is dead right like around 2006 2000 like 2005 you know 2006 like pc gaming is dead was all over the headlines you know some ga companies were making games but for a long time like the only pc game you heard about was world of warcraft you know other people were limping along and i'm sure paradox was off in their caves you know making spinning straw into gold but for the most part even the big companies weren't making money on pc you know and valve was just silently kind of keeping the faith and then, you know, for a while, like, having a game on Steam that wasn't a Valve game was, like, a weird gimmick. It was like, well, that's cute. What's this Gary's Mod thing doing here? People are buying that? That's cute. Now it's still in the top sellers 15 million years later. Yeah. But um, so it used to be there was nowhere to sell your games, you know. And then kind of there was the flash boom for a while. And for a while, you know, that was how I made money is, like, I would make games and I would put them on you know congregate in other places and like sell sponsorships and the problem with that is that it's like you could hope for a fixed amount for your game and there was like a cap even if you made like the best game like you could aspire to a hundred thousand dollars if you're like the best um but then that's like you divide that by how many hours you can man it's like you can't make two hundred thousand dollars you can make a hundred thousand that's like the record or whatever and you'll probably make 50 so you need to like cut your ambition down and like stop working on your game at some point which is why flash games always kind of peaked out at a certain level of content Free-to-play came later, mobile came later, you know, all these things. But basically, the problem used to be you make a game, but you can't get attention for it. Then Steam, around 2011, 2012, you know, there was this sweet spot where it was like, it's impossible to get onto Steam, but if you can, there's enough people on there buying games and so few games that everyone enough people will buy yours that you're guaranteed a meal ticket and there were like just one or two or three exceptions to this but 
by and large, if you could put a game in that was good enough to get onto Steam, it would sell well. And Defender's Quest was lucky to catch basically the tail end of that. Um, but we immediately started moving into, you know, green light and stuff, and now it's flooded, which really just takes us back to where it was before. Um, but with one key difference is that now PC games is not dead. PC games is a booming market. Arguably, in some ways, you know, I'm not sure if it's bigger than the console market. It might be bigger than individual consoles, you know. But, I mean, it, it, it's certainly a force to be reckoned with. And there's tons and tons of players, but now you can't get attention. Before, it was like you can't get Steam's attention. There's a million games trying to get onto Steam, and only a couple of them will be lucky enough. And so you, your game was try to be lucky enough to get onto Steam. Now your game is, okay, you're on Steam just like everybody else. Now you need to be good enough to be noticed. So kind of the more things change, the more they stay the same is what, what I'm trying to say for the fifth time. Um, and then, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. But the details have changed. And one of the big things was um, the kind of death of print games journalism. You know, not, not, not even just print, but just written games journalism too. You know, it used to be like, you want to be in a magazine. You want to be in PC Gamer the magazine. Um, and then they was died. It's like, now you want to be on a blog. You want to be on Rock, Paper, Shotgun. You want to be on, like, jisgames.com, that little casual portal website. Like, they used to be able to move, like, a serious number of eyeballs. And now I think I think that's been shut down just recently now after kind of tapering off for a long time. Wow. And, and then it's all, and then suddenly it all became about YouTubers and Twitch streamers, and I totally missed that boat. Um, I, I was super bad at getting press to write about us when we first came out, and I was super bad about getting YouTubers and Twitch to write about us. I totally didn't notice them until they're already so famous and big that it's almost impossible to get them to answer your emails now, too. Right, and so yeah. I, I console myself with thinking, don't worry, there'll be plenty of more boats to miss in the future. And <laughs> <laughs> we are missing the VR boat as we speak. Yeah, All I'm. Else. I'm kind of. I'm kind of like. I don't feel like I'm missing too much of a boat on VR right now. I feel like I, I wrote an article recently. Um, I'm not sure if you guys might have seen it uh, called "Bounds, Bottlenecks, and Digital Marketing," where I, I won't go off on a tangent about it, but where I basically describe why I'm not willing to jump on the VR train right now because basically the only way to make money in VR right now, in order to like. Back in the day with Flash games, it's like you could only count on so much of a sponsorship like ever. That's your only way of making money. So you can only put so much effort in and anything other than that is wasted. Right now, the same thing is basically true with VR. And instead of sponsors, it's platform subsidies. Um, there's mm -hmm. just not enough people with a badass enough rig um, to run your VR game who also have a VR headset um, just based on install base numbers that your only real chance of an income right now is if Valve or Oculus is going to give you a lot of money. Um, in the future, that might change, and then it's going to be really, really good for the people who have a good quality title out there right as the wave crests, you know, if indeed it does. But for instance, I think, you know, I'm much more a Gunpei Yoko kind of guy, you know, a lateral thinking with wither technology, you know, Pokemon Go, AR, bam, yeah. you know, bajillions of dollars right away whereas everyone else is like chasing vr for money that could materialize one day if the stars align and if nothing bad happens and if it doesn't turn out to be a bubble you know it's super cool technology um just business Absolutely. fundamentals aren't there yet but ar is something you could do today and if you really know what you're doing you know if you if your name is neantic and you team up with nintendo then you will make a lot of money <laughs> but other than that you're you're still hurting probably yeah yeah but it but it but it's possible you know it it's is, not yeah. possible for the pokemon go vr right now it's not possible even for valve 
I think that's something that, that gets lost in the VR hype sometimes is that, like you were saying, there's this very small number of people that will be able to buy and enjoy your game right now. And it seems right. like, you know, my personal opinion of that is that it's going to take a while for those costs to come down. Um, and, and just like the friction around getting a VR set up, getting it all set up in your living room, you know, sitting down, like that's too much for a lot of people probably. Right. And, and the, the upside is that pretty much anyone with a VR headset who's able to play VR is going to buy your game, whatever it is right now at almost any price. And you um, know, they have money to burn. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. that, that's the upside. The, the, problem is just the cold hard reality is that if you multiply all those numbers it's still probably not enough to fund whatever it is you're doing but if valve or oculus is going to show up with a bucket of money and it winds up being in the green and heck yeah do that yeah. you know you know i mean so, so so vr right now is not sustainable without external injections but um i like to stick to things that are otherwise much more low cost um for now yeah. and i don't have plans on jumping on vr once it gets big because otherwise uh that that you you might need to start like, like the first VR millionaire probably does need to f- start figuring things out about now. You know, it's not <laughs> something that you can easily transition to maybe. Yeah. I think for guys like us uh, who have, you know, largely 2D experience and like build stuff on web tech, it's, uh, it feels like a bit of a reach to go from there to 3D and then to VR. VR. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I don't know. For me personally, I'd be way overextending myself. I just, I'm just gonna kind of let that boat go. Let's watch yeah. it go. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, so many indies kill themselves, like not on just difficult sophomore album. You know, like even you, you're using your same engine. You know, you you just get yourself killed, just doing everything you did the last time, just because the market has moved. You didn't right. make any technical or content mistakes or any marketing mistakes by the logic of two years ago. But now it's two years later, and now you're doomed. So why yeah. would you? Th- so throwing even more variables in there, it's like, okay, we're also going to do 3D, and I've seen plenty of people bite it on 3D, um, and now we're also going to do VR, which is like hyper 3D. It might as well be 4D, you know. Yeah. It's exponentially more difficult each step. Right, right, right. Exactly, it and just, it's, it's crazy. more costly. You know, it's like there's more content you got to fill in there. I mean, it's just like, just like praise the Lord that right now you can kind of get away with lower fidelity in VR because you have to. Praise the Lord that you can make things like Fantastic Contraption that are mostly just kind of like solid shaded and like cartoony, you know, mm-hmm. and just focus on like the fundamentals because otherwise it's not going to run at 60 FPS, right. you know, and like you just have to and people's expectations are a little lower. I mean, it's like just like God help the people who are in a scenario that need to bring AAA standards of entire teams of people doing nothing but modeling noses, you know, <laughs> to next gen VR. Just yeah. God help them because no one else will. Elder Scrolls Ten will be insane. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I could talk about VR all day. I'm super nice. excited for whoever solves all these problems, but I don't know how, so I'm not going to bet my, you know, heart, my stomach, and liver on it. <laughs> yeah, I'll be a consumer. I'll be a happy consumer in a couple of years. Yeah, but it'll be the one thing I don't try to develop for. Mm-hmm. So is there anything specific you would like to plug? I know our listeners are really big into web tech. A lot of our listeners uh, really love indie games. Where would you direct them? What do you want them to go check out? 
Well, I mean, I would just tell people that if you're interested in 2D game development, I would definitely give Hackflexel a look. Um, it is one of the several open source libraries that I actively contribute to. It's probably my favorite. Um, it, of course, depends on OpenFL, um, which is a re-implementation of the Flash API, um, and, and so much more than that. And then, of course, uh, Hacks, the programming language. So recommendation for Hacksflixel is a recommendation for the other two. Um, and those would be the things I would specifically plug in terms of tools and stuff like that. Um, is your campaign still ongoing? It is finished now, but apparently Indiegogo has this thing called In Demand. So um, you can kind of like leave, um, people can still pledge after it's done. And um, I don't know if there's any kind of time limit on that. I think if you were to go to the page now, you could still probably pledge if you wanted. You know, we have a couple limited tiers with like keys for games and stuff that might not be totally um, exhausted yet. So there might be a couple of those spots left if people are interested. And uh, Defender's Quest uh, DX, that's yes. available and ready to go? Yeah, it's on Steam, it's on GOG, it's on Humble, and it's on our own website. And um, yeah. Awesome. Right. Coming soon to a PS Vita and PlayStation 4 and Xbox One and Wii U near you, potentially, if I wow. can figure everything out. That's, uh, that's very impressive, especially for uh, like an open source project to be that level of cross-platform. Very nice. Yeah, well, you, you can congratulate me when I actually pull it off. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been great. Yeah, and best of luck with your guys' stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. That's great to hear. Thanks a lot. Cool. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to check out Lars's writings and games. I'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes. And join us on the forum, forum.lostdecadegames.com. Ship it. I feel good. I just wanted to make sure you got more than just Lars's weird personal topics for an hour. <laughs>